Good evening, and thank you for joining us. I'm Ed Hand, your host for tonight's unpublished TV panel discussion. Our topic tonight, the second wave of the pandemic. However you're watching and listening to our show, whether through our social media channels on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, or on our podcast channels, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and more, I'd like to remind you, you can still cast your vote on this topic at unpublished.vote and email your MP to tell them why. Now, our question this week is, will the second wave see more infections than the first? And you told us 36.8% feel yes, 61.8% said no, 1.5% were unsure. And unpublished.vote, you will find our podcast on this issue, as well as articles, opinion pieces, and research on the various views of the second wave of COVID in Canada. So let's get started. Joining us this evening, Patrick Saunders Hastings, a professor of epidemiology at Carleton University, as well as with Jevity Consulting. Jasmine Moulton's the Ontario Director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. And Mike Schreiner is the leader of the Green Party of Ontario, as well as the MPP for Guelph. Now, Michelle Rempel-Garner was to join us this evening. She is the MP for Calgary Nose Hill, as well as the health critic for the Conservatives. But they're burning the midnight oil on the hill, and she's unable to join us. Now, Patrick, just over one-third of uh, our unpublished.vote viewers feel Canada will get more infections in the second wave than the first. Uh, Is that the situation we're heading into right now? Yeah, so I'd like to hedge and then and then give you my view. I sure. think the the most honest answer is that it depends. And I think the reason I want to emphasize that is because second waves in themselves aren't unavoidable, nor, nor are the consequences of second waves. I think a lot of it will depend on the behaviors of individuals and the responses of public health authorities and governments. Um, I think the way things have going, it is certainly trending towards having a second wave that has more infections. Um, We can't rely on a vaccine coming. We've seen that herd immunity is not going to be slowing infections notably, nor has temperature change. If anything, uh, I think we're leading or heading into a time of higher risk. So I think all things being equal, we are facing a second wave with a higher infection rate. Couple that with pandemic fatigue and people maybe not adhering as closely to some recommendations as they formerly were, um, there's certainly a risk of a more severe second wave, but that's not by any stretch unavoidable. Now, if we think back to the uh, the Spanish flu, the second wave was worse than the first. Was that just because they were going into winter or was there something, you know, was there something different than our situation as we go into winter as well? So there's a combination of things. What I would caution is that generally when we're talking about the history of pandemics, we are talking basically exclusively about influenza. Uh, Obviously, COVID-19 is not an influenza virus. So assuming that it will behave in exactly the same way is problematic in in a number of ways. So we are still seeing this wave behavior that we often see with respiratory virus pandemics. Um, what we what we really hope is that we do not also see an increase in um, in mortality rate that we sometimes see accompany the second wave of influenza pandemics, including the 1918 uh, Spanish flu. However, I think the sociological factors and, and sort of technological advances we've had in the past hundred years make it a bit difficult to compare those apples to oranges um, and, and draw too directly from lessons from the 1918 pandemic. Jasmine, when we look at uh, a second wave, and of course, a lot of us worry about the first wave when everything got shut down, the latest numbers from Nanos Research find a majority of Canadians support those lockdowns at non-essential businesses. Seven in 10 also support controlling provincial travel. Now, is this using a hammer to kill a fly, or or do you feel Canadians are rightly 
concerned and scared? I think it also depends on the question you're asking them, because there are a lot of Canadians. Another recent poll just showed, I think it was 67% of Canadians are very concerned about the massive deficits that our governments are running. So are Canadians concerned? Yes, and they're wise to be concerned. But fortunately, our politicians now, our political leaders know a lot more about this virus than they did in the spring. And as we're confronted with uh, the second wave, uh, so to speak, Fortunately, our political leaders now, because they know more, won't have to resort, I think, to the same draconian lockdown measures that we saw inflicted so much economic devastation. Um, we certainly cannot afford another lockdown the style we had this spring. And certainly our politicians should be passing along. They should be more transparent about um, the rationale that they're using to enforce the current restrictions that we've seen. Mike, uh, and, and when we look at... Uh the lockdowns and, you know, appeal Toronto, Ottawa, and now York region today goes down to, in, into lockdown. Is it too little too late for the area? Well, I've been advocating a surgical targeted strategy to contain the virus. I mean, the bottom line is, is the best way to make sure our economy is open and running well is to address the public health crisis. And I don't think anyone wants to go back to the kind of lockdowns we saw in the spring. So I think targeted in those businesses where the data is showing their spread of the virus, targeted to those regions where you're seeing that spread of the virus, then targeted business supports for those small businesses. Um, I think in the case of York um, region, the premier handled it fairly well. I think in the case of uh, Toronto, Ottawa and um, Peel region, he didn't give businesses enough time. He should have done it a few days sooner to give them a few days notice. For example, we had a number of restaurants who said, you know, hey, we spent 30000 I heard one case, $70,000 uh, in food in preparation for the weekend. And when you lock them down at, you know, noon and say by midnight, you know, you're closed, it just didn't give businesses enough time to respond. So I think the premier should have done it sooner to help contain the virus and given businesses enough notice so they could have shut down in a responsible and in a way that didn't do as much physical or financial damage to the business. Now, when we think back to the first wave when it came here, and I, I, I understand your point, Jasmine, about the draconian lockdown, but at that point, going with Mike's idea about using that surgical precision to target areas, we didn't know where where it was coming, did we, in the, in the first round? So... Was not a lockdown the only way you could do it? What do you think, Mike? Yeah, I, I think the way we did it in the first the first wave, when you know we, we didn't have the kind of knowledge we have now, we didn't know, um, you know, was there asymptomatic transmission happening or not? Where was the transmission happening? How fast was it going through our population? And so I think to second guess governments around the kinds of lockdowns we saw in the first wave, uh, I don't think it's very helpful. Uh, where I've been critical of government, frankly, is the lack of preparation in the second wave, especially when it comes to testing, contact tracing, and lab capacity. One of the best ways, and I'm sure Patrick can talk about this, of containing the virus is to make sure we're testing, we're getting quick uh, rapid uh, you know, lab response, and then we're doing contact tracing as a way to contain the virus. And unfortunately, Ontario simply wasn't prepared for the fall increase in, in virus counts and in testing demand. 
Now, they weren't ready, they weren't prepared, or possibly just hoping that we wouldn't see the second wave? Well, I, I don't know. I, I don't think know. almost every health expert I've talked to yeah. said we were going to have a second wave. So I think over the summer was a time to really make sure Ontario had its uh, testing capacity, its lab capacity, and its contact tracing capacity in place as a way to you know contain the spread of the virus as much as possible so we can avoid uh, economic restrictions and lockdowns. You know, Patrick, it seems contract, contact tracing is the... You know, we've heard about the three the three keys to, to it was test, trace, isolate. But tracing seems to be the one that's having a lot of trouble. Why is that? So I, th- I think you're right. Uh, it is, although we have a massive backlog of tests in Ontario that is starting to shrink, fortunately, now. Um, but I, I'd like to speak to that a little bit first. Um, I will also say that I think Mike is sort of speaking two minutes in front of me and, and is making points that I completely agree with. I, I think you're bang on, Mike, where we do want this surgical tailored approach to our, our pandemic interventions. But to do that, we need to be able to rely on the test, trace, isolate framework. As we start to see cases tick back up and overwhelm our capacity to do that, that's when we start going to these broader mitigation measures that are so costly from a human and economic point of view. So to circle back around to your question, part of why contact tracing is so difficult is because of the amount of legwork required in such a short period of time. And where we really saw this start to be overwhelmed was when schools reopened because the amount of contact tracing that needed to happen increased exponentially overnight. Um, But at the same time, what we saw across the province was that the type of people who had to receive tests um, was not sufficiently tailored. So contacts of children with runny nose had to receive tests. Mm -hmm. And so here in Ottawa, where I'm based, we had lines of eight hours of people waiting to get tests before they could send their kids back to school. And that's just not feasible over the longer term. But we're still seeing, I kind of want to differentiate between a process indicator and an outcome indicator. And the process indicators sort of suggest how well we're doing something, whether that's meeting our targets for contact tracing 90% of contacts within 24 hours, whether it's returning test results within 24 to 48 hours. Um, We're not meeting that in some of our hotspots. And that's why we've seen at a provincial level, or in some of these hotspots, I should say, a restriction on who can get tests and on who is being contact traced. And that's really problematic because it places an artificial ceiling on some of those process indicators and makes things look a little rosier than they actually are. And so we we think that our test trace isolate framework is operating better because our, our testing backlog is being reduced and we're tracing the contacts that we feel we need to, mostly those at highest risk. But there's a large underwater portion of that iceberg that we're no longer seeing. Um, and, and we talk about things that we now know about the virus. We know that casual contacts and asymptomatic individuals are capable of spreading this infection. We'll no longer capture those in this current approach. Jasmine, we've been talking, we talked business with you a few minutes ago and, and uh, another survey came out today, kind of sort of uh, shows what the situation is with apparently small, with small and medium businesses. KPMG saying, one third of small and medium businesses say they will not survive a second wave. One quarter regret not selling their business before the pandemic. Are you hearing the same for Ontario? Absolutely. And Ed, my heart especially goes out to small business owners because before I sold my business uh, back in, I think that was 2017, um, 
or a few years back and joined the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, I know how difficult it is to run a business without a global pandemic. Uh, So my heart absolutely goes out to these business owners. And that's why it's so mind blowing for me that we actually have people um, oftentimes sitting on you know, in government offices, um, whether they're politicians, bureaucrats, um, sitting there in their safe jobs saying, you know, we need another lockdown. It's not economically feasible. It's, uh, it's, we couldn't afford the first lockdown and these restrictions, we cannot afford to keep paying everybody's salary. CERB has been, um, although it was obviously required, it's been a bit disastrous as well. We've seen payments go out of the country. Uh, we've seen them go to people, you know, living in their parents' basements. Now a report comes out that people are using CERB payments to purchase guns. Gangs are buying guns in Toronto. Um, This response, although it was required in the outset, has been so expensive. And uh, as we see so many people outside of government losing their jobs, I haven't seen, you know, one person at Queen's Park uh, taking a salary, a pay cut, um, which we called for. I haven't seen anyone uh, in government. There's 1.3 million government employees um, working for the government of Ontario. They all got a raise this year, while millions of Ontarians lost their jobs or had hours reduced it's vastly unfair. It's very unsustainable. Um, so those people should not be calling for further restrictions, um, especially while we lack evidence. Uh, actually, I thought I read today that uh, Doug Ford and it was it uh, Rod Phillips were going to give ten thousand dollars each from their their pay back. Just to, but that but you're right, and I and, and Mike, you know, I think that's where some people don't get it. You know, here in Ottawa, we're fairly, we can be fairly insulated. Patrick knows that. You know, one third of the employment here is is administration for the federal government. Obviously, they're doing all those programs. But you get into other places, they, you know, it, it's a whole different world, isn't it? Well, first of all, you'd asked about the premier salary. And uh, that was actually a law that was passed that if the budget wasn't delivered on time, the premier and the finance uh, minister took a bit of a haircut. Uh, and so that that's what happened this year. And in many respects, uh, you know, it was largely out of their control. I mean, it would have made no sense for the finance minister to bring in a budget earlier this spring. Uh, in, in regards to uh, lockdowns, I don't know any politician uh, of any party at Queen's Park that is advocating and, you know, cheering on lockdowns. None of us want to do this, but we all recognize that for public health measures, there's really two priorities. The first one is, is to save people's lives. And, and the actions we've taken have been designed to save people's lives and especially uh, make sure our healthcare system is not overwhelmed. And you're starting to see additional pressure being placed on our healthcare system now. About half of public health units are reporting that hospital ICU capacity in their region is less than 20%. In some cases, we have no ICU capacity right now. Uh, Michael Guerin Hospital is reporting there in Toronto, they're over capacity. Uh, And so, you know, we have to make sure, one, we save lives. The second one is we want to minimize disruption. And that's why, you know, that's why I've been advocating for, and I think the Premier has largely taken this approach as well, is targeted surgical regional um, restrictions as we head into the second wave uh, to contain the virus because we want to avoid full lockdowns like what was necessary in the spring. And, and if I could jump in here. Sure. 
Um, so that that precisely is our issue is that there's a lack of evidence here. So uh, when Mike talks about, you know, the goal is to avoid mass hospitalizations. Well, in May, we saw Ontario's hospitalizations surpass 1000. But now, uh, you know, they're hovering around 250. So uh, clearly, we're at, you know, a fourth of what we were back in back in the first wave. And then when you look at the restrictions that the province and the city of Toronto are placing on um, small business owners who have put their life savings into opening up their restaurants or, you know, these gyms, for example, the province hasn't provided a shred of evidence proving that these are where the breakouts are happening. Uh, The city of Toronto imposed restrictions on bars and restaurants. um, And meanwhile, at the same time, Toronto Public Health stopped contract tracing because they said the numbers were too high. So um, if these, you know, draconian restrictions that are costing people their life savings, their businesses, their livelihoods. I mean, that's a big price to pay. Um, If we need to do it to save lives, I think people are rational and could agree to it. But that's our issue is that the government hasn't provided any transparency or evidence to show that uh, these businesses are actually the culprits. I could add just really quick on the transparency. I would agree with you on the transparency side of things. I do think the provincial government needs to be more transparent with the data. I would disagree with you on what I think the numbers are starting to show if you look at the publicly available numbers, but all the opposition parties have been calling on the premier and the health minister to be more transparent in the numbers and in what's driving their decision making. Patrick, okay, go ahead. uh, I was just going to say those numbers that I cited came off the Ontario COVID website uh, today. So Mm -hmm. they have been very transparent about the numbers, but it's, you know, where are they coming from? Uh, The numbers are great, um, but we need to understand the source uh, before they can justify restrictions on businesses. Patrick, information is power in particular in a pandemic, but here in Ottawa, health officials don't know where one third of infections come from. That has to be concerning to you. It's very concerning to me, and it speaks a little bit to what Jasmine is saying, where when we're missing the source of infection for a third of the active cases, we're just not able to tailor our strategy the way that we want to. Um, Conversely, we see other surveys that say a large even majority of those uh, new active cases have been to restaurants. So indirectly, we're led to think, okay, restaurants are sources of infection, and that's part of what's driving this response. But I agree that's a step or two removed from the level of evidence that we would like to have to inform our decisions. I think the other thing I would say is that I want to avoid the binary discussion between a full lockdown and a completely open society, because that's really not what epidemiologists or, or politicians or really anyone is, is talking about. So how can we sort of efficiently and effectively lock down, quote unquote, as a stall while we improve capacity in other areas? And I think the tough pill to swallow, or I think if I were a business owner, the tough pill to swallow would be while I was locked down during the first wave, that capacity building I would have hoped to see did not happen. So we got our cases very low across the board. Ottawa's was down to a few cases as much as one, two, three, five, six cases a day. But we didn't invest in improved contact tracing or testing capacity during that lull. And I think it's now coming back to bite us. So those who I think were responsible and accountable for investing that capacity aren't necessarily the ones who will pay the price for another lockdown. Now, you mentioned surveillance blind spots a few months ago when considering a second wave. Is that what you're referring to? 
So when I when I discuss surveillance blind spots, I, I think in the context of our discussion a few months ago, that was probably in relation to where we have more limited um, testing capacity. So in the context of more limited PCR capacity in rural communities. Um, with that said, I think um, to Jasmine's point on restricting who is being contact traced, that would also absolutely qualify as a um, as a surveillance blind spot. When we spoke a few months ago, we were nowhere near that. I, I didn't foresee that sort of uh, approach being taken um, at this stage. Uh, Jasmine, we talked about the uh, about you know the lockdown, the businesses, the impact on in particular on small business, but it doesn't seem big business really got hammered, did it? Because Walmart got to stay open and Costco got to stay open, but the mom and pop on the corner that provides a pretty you know in, in, in little grocery stores that, that you know that provide a service, eliminate the food desert that we have to deal with in a lot of, a lot of cities, they had to stay down. That, that, again, that's the, I guess the situation you're trying to drive at is the, there was no sort of process in that. Absolutely. A lot of it seemed very arbitrary. Uh, I've heard anecdotally of hardware stores saying, well, if I maybe put some bread on one of my shelves, I'll be able to stay open and, you know, let customers come shop in my store. So it just seemed very arbitrary. Um, and again, we need to, when we're talking about health overall, there are a lot of health impacts outside of COVID-19. When you look at suicides, for example, um, you know, alcohol consumption, opioid use. Uh, so there are a lot of other health effects that we have to consider. And, and having been a business owner myself, I can tell you the stress that comes from the uncertainty of operating a small business, um, especially when your life savings are, are tied in there. So it really has been uh, very, very difficult for small business owners. Um, we've seen Amazon, you know, skyrocket during mm -hmm. this whole this whole thing. Um, but at the same time, we've seen provincial revenues take a massive hit and corporate, uh, corporate taxes are one of their main sources of revenue. So I think it's in everybody's uh, best interest to figure out away. And like I started off by saying, in the first wave, we no one really knew what was happening. And I don't think anyone in their right mind could criticize the government for spending on health-related measures. But now that we go into the second wave, we're going in a lot more informed. And the government should modify its approach. It should not be so draconian and erase people's life savings and, and you know, really make some permanent damage to the business landscape in this province. I wonder, uh, what kind of impact does this mindset have on the entre entrepreneurial economy, Jasmine? That's a great question. I was actually in uh, uh, out in Toronto this weekend talking to um, some restaurant owners and also shopping. Um, I mean, it really depends by sector. There are some sectors who have uh, done well, uh, you know, in this when the SERP payments are flowing. Uh, some retail businesses have done well, as you point out, usually the larger ones. Um, but their uh, hospitality is one sector that for sure, uh, I think you're going to see a lot of permanent, especially in the restaurant sector, permanent closures that will just not be able to recover. All right, I got a question from our, our first Facebook Live viewers, Mike. This one's for you. What can and should our governments do to help small business through the second wave? Yeah, so Ed is a longtime small business owner who has put my own personal capital at risk for many years. Um, I can tell you that, you know, no small business wants to come to government with their handout, but right now, small businesses need support. So one of the things we've been advocating for is fixing the rent relief program 
it looks like finally now the federal government has made changes to it so that small business tenants can apply and the revenue threshold level uh, to apply is not so high. But why did it take, you know, six months into the pandemic to actually fix that? The second thing I think Ontario should do is do what Quebec has done and where you do targeted closures, provide grants to those businesses targeted. So not across the board, but targeted to those businesses that have had to close down. So Quebec is doing it as a $15,000 grant to those businesses in the hotspot areas. I think that makes a lot of sense. And then uh, the final thing that a lot of businesses have asked for is just help in complying with public health measures. Businesses want to do the right things. They want to keep their customers safe. They want to keep their staff safe. But after, you know, six months of not being open in some cases, then being able to look for and find the additional capital to, you know, buy plexiglass or PPE or whatever. So if we can just provide businesses with those supports so they can stay open, stay in business, keep people employed, keep our downtowns vibrant, that means the economy is going to bounce back much faster and government revenues will bounce back much faster as well. Patrick, the prime minister feels we have more available uh, to deal with a second wave than we did with the first, uh, in particular, to avoid a shutdown. Do you feel that we, we do that? I mean, the, the short answer is no. Um, and I'll, I'll sort of put mm-hmm. it in sense of I don't know what is meant by more available. Um, so I think that we have, um, have have wasted a lot of time in the interwave period um, and are not as prepared as we should be at this stage in the process. Um, I think as a result, we're we're once again being ro- uh, reactive, where in an ideal world, we'd be able to be proactive. So Throughout both first and second wave, we've seen fairly inconsistent guidance. And, and Mike makes an excellent point. If I was answering that question, I would have said guidance to business owners as well. I, I think that's been lacking. But also to the public, we're seeing inconsistent guidance there. Um, so in terms of information resources, I think we're still lacking. Um, we're continuing to see testing backlogs persist, and uh, we're not meeting our contact t- tracing thresholds. Um, I feel quite strongly that we need to have rapid tests in Canada and that we've been slow on the uptake for that. And I think there are applications of rapid tests that can support economic recovery and, and um, avoid lockdowns, at least in some areas, that we haven't uh, leveraged. And we're starting to see a return to potential hospital resource shortages as well. So, no, I think we're at risk of resource shortages across the board as we continue into the second wave. When you talk about a rapid test and needing it, uh, is that because Health Canada is slow on approval? They they are continuing to validate the rapid tests where um, these have several have already been approved in other countries and are, are being put to use. Um, but of course, Health Canada has their own um, validation guidelines for that. My- but I think ju- just to um, sort of offer my my own bias sure. and, and opinion on that. Generally, what we see in terms of rapid tests, um, in, in terms of the relative decrease in performance relative to our gold standard PCR tests, is that there's a higher rate of false positives. Again, my bias is that I care less about false positives than I do false negatives, because we are able to then isolate false positives, potentially even confirm with rapid PCR tests. There's uh, any number of triage strategies we could have there, whereas not knowing your infection stra- uh, status to mm-hmm. me is much more problematic. Now, Mike, it seems uh, at least going into the second wave, the ones that are driving this this surge are, are those in the twenty to 
29, well, probably even younger than 20. Uh, but what I'm wondering is, you know, in the first wave, it was long-term care that, that was just absolutely hammered. Is long-term care prepared for the second wave? And I'm I'm deeply worried that long-term care is not prepared for the second wave. We already have 316 long-term care homes in outbreak in Ontario right now. And we're starting to see a shift in transmission from younger ages to older populations now. And I'm worried that's only going to increase. One of the big challenges we're facing in long-term care is inadequate staff levels. And again, I felt the government, as I argued, should have spent the summer having our testing and lab capacity and contact tracing in place, I believe we should have been hiring additional staff for our long-term care homes over the summer because you can't just snap your fingers and hire staff right away. Um, so we would have our long-term care homes ready. Now the province is scrambling, trying to hire additional staff, uh, but we should have had that done two, three months ago. So we were prepared for the second wave in long-term care. That's the that's the one thing that has me really really worried going into uh, into the fall and the winter. Now, uh, Jasmine, um, you've been watching the dollars on the on our show so far, but it's budget season. It's on the horizon for municipalities. And are you expecting hands out for for help this year? From the province to the municipalities. Yeah, well, the cities with their hands out to the province. Absolutely, and I mean we've seen so much waste in at a municipal level that uh, it's really shocking that businesses tend to, uh, governments think it's business as usual, when in reality, their tax base is suffering, it's shriveled up their tax revenue. Um, Yet we see, for example, the city of Toronto, uh, a few months ago was demanding a bailout from the federal and provincial governments. And this is a city that as we speak, still plans to go ahead building a nearly $4 billion floating park above the railways on the way into Union Station. Uh, It has hundreds of homeless encampments in its cities. Um, So these are just, there are so many, there's so much waste at the municipal level. Um, Do they need help? Uh, Yes, they're probably struggling and really suffering. Uh, Their revenues uh, have, you know, shriveled as well uh, as their tax base has shrunk, but they need to cut That's our whole point here is that governments, it's not just business as usual. They need to reprioritize, uh, shelve some projects that aren't necessary spending right now. And we haven't seen, um, frankly, any government, municipal, provincial or federal uh, do this. They they need to. We've seen uh, in Ontario, for example, this has been described as the greatest deliberate destruction of economic activity in human history. And when we look at Ontario, we have a budget deficit that's a record high of, it will be 37 billion this year. We have another record high debt to GDP ratio at 48%. And this is a really uh, troubling statistic for for me. And I think it puts this into perspective for our listeners is that uh, we have a large deficit. Um, The FAO uh, Financial Accountability Office of Ontario just released a report that said in the next two years, Ontario will add 70 billion to the provincial debt. And I did a quick calculation before the show and that breaks down to about 4,800 in debt per Ontarian. And let me remind our listeners, it wasn't the Ontario government paying the CERB. Um, The federal government, there was a Liberal MP from Kingston bragging about how they spent most on on the response. Um, So it it wasn't Ontario that was even paying that. And so we have to remember that debt today means taxes tomorrow, Mm. and we're about to pass down all this debt to the next generation to pay off. 
Jasmine, we'll leave the last word with you. Thank you very much. And I want to thank our panelists, Patrick, Mike, uh, our, our unpublished TV panel uh, joining us this evening. It was uh, Patrick Saunders Hastings, epidemiologist with Carleton University, as well as Jevity Consulting. The Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation is Jasmine Moulton, and Mike Schreiner is the leader of the Green Party of Ontario, as well as the MPP for Guelph. Coming up on our next Unpublished TV, we'll take a look at rapid testing for COVID and how it could help flatten the curve. Thanks for watching Unpublished TV. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand.